for every difficulty, one easy. This is what we give you. For every difficulty, we will give you one easy. So we're saying that if you're going through a difficulty now, there will, there will be an easy coming. And if, there's an, if you're in an easy, there'll probably be a difficulty coming. But if you change your perspective and see difficulty as, a, as an opportunity to grow, and instead of running away from it and being afraid of it, be curious about it. What can I learn from this? Yeah, I know it's uncomfortable and I know I want to run away, but let me be curious about this. And the moment we're curious about it, the brain can't cope, the brain can't process curiosity and fear at the same time. Today, I am joined by BAFTA winning writer, Jeff Thompson. Jeff is also an acclaimed mixed martial artist. He's a spiritual teacher. He's a coach and a filmmaker. Throughout the conversation today, we talk about his earlier life, which formed him. This is the most raw, honest, open and impactful conversation I've ever had on this podcast. Jeff shares his experiences with depression, being abused and overcoming his fears in life that were holding him back. This conversation is completely unedited and you'll know why when you listen to it. I really didn't want to take any authenticity out of it. I hope this conversation helps you in some way. Let's get into it. So Jeff, I read in your early years that you feared nerves and confrontation. So I want to, I guess I want to start with where did that come from? What were your early years like? I would say that I had a, um, a sensitive sympathetic nervous system. They call it sympathetic sensitive. Yeah. So I was easily aroused with, with fear with any kind of, you know, endocrine reaction. So I was naturally uh, nervous. My mom always said I suffered with my nerves and I, I inherited it from her. But I would say it was a byproduct of, of a creative. I was a creative guy. I was excited to be alive. I didn't doubt the, the um, possibility of everything. I, could, I, I believed everything was possible. And so I was excited to be alive, but I really felt that in my, um, in my central nervous system. So I felt it in my digestion. I felt it in my toilet. Every, all, my, all of my uh, sympathetic nerves were, were quite easily aroused. That makes you very vulnerable to fear, makes you very vulnerable to um, sexual arousal, all of the normal traps that, you know, that we kind of fall into as we're growing up. Um, it also created depression in me as a young person because I'd have this great urge to create, but I didn't really know what to create. So I had lots of energy building up to create something that I couldn't find. So it would loop back on itself and I'd find myself root bound. So, you know, the energy that wanted to create became um, pestilence. It became a pestilence in my body, if that makes sense. It just backed up. And that would, that would end up with me having, uh, you know, depression and all that, even as a young person. So I was really excited to go from the small school where I was a god, you know, and everybody knew yeah. I was a god, you know, <laughs> to the big school where nobody knew I was a god at all. <laughs> I was just anonymous. So um, I guess that was my first experience of my nervous system taking over me falling into depressions as an 11 year old yeah. um, and not knowing that this is an active energy. It's alive. It's a culture. It wants to create. It wants to um, evolve. It wants to experience. And I didn't have the, uh, the articulation or the intellect or the knowledge at that time to know that. You know, so yeah. you know that, that's again. Even at a young age, I was experiencing this <clears throat> build-up of energy that I had nowhere to go. How did you manage to articulate that then? And because I think you can be forgiven <clears throat> for when you are experiencing real huge heightened nerves, it can turn into anxiety and panic. So, especially in those formative years, how did you cope with that? I, uh, but for initially you reach out, don't you? You reach yeah. out to people. I reached out to uh, my mom. My mom was a big help because she suffered with the nerves. But the problem with my mom was like, this is something you've got for life and you're not going to escape it, which leaves you uh, with no hope. It's mm. kind of like this thing's going to come in and it's going to wipe me out whenever it feels like it. Yeah. I went to God. I went into the chapel every day at, uh, in, in my school and uh, the answer did come from there, but I didn't understand the answer at the time. It was, I don't know, um, 
40 years before I returned to that same chapel and, and found the answer that I was given at the time. Uh, they went to the doctors when I was a bit older. And of course, the doctor is a general practitioner, so he doesn't really understand psyche, doesn't understand uh, even really the endocrine system. They don't really understand, you know, uh, for the answer to stress for them mostly and, and nerves or depression is um, tablets, you know, antidepressants, mm -hmm. which yeah. I tried when I was older um, and it didn't suit me at all. It, I knew it wasn't the answer for me, you know. So I guess I was in this spaceship, in this miraculous vehicle, and it is miraculous mm. because it's, you know, this is the inlet and outlet to divinity. This is a, this is a vehicle of causation we can cause in the world. I didn't, have a, I didn't have a handbook. I didn't understand it. So I started to study, started to read, and mostly the books that promised to give you the answers to your fears yeah. and to overcome your fears that didn't give you them. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't give you them. Perhaps they were too scared to, to reveal what they'd seen. Um, perhaps they just didn't know. But a lot of people were, were offering um, kind of sickly sweet solutions to a hard problem. Yeah. I, needed, I needed something that would enable me to turn in to this fear, which felt demonic to me because it, you know, it felt like it was persecuting me. Uh, I, needed some, I needed a technique where I could turn into that and face it and overcome it. Um, and the books I was reading kind of made me quite angry because I was just thinking, you promised you would give me an answer and you haven't. And of course, the, you know, all of the books were closing the doors to me because they were saying we want you, what they were doing, they're saying we want you to find the answer yourself. Yeah. The answer really isn't out here. The answer's inside. So I went inside eventually after one particularly bad depression I just thought, okay, I'm, I'm tired of this. I am tired of living like this. So I just said, okay, let's have a look at you. I'm running away from you all the time. You're booting my front door down. Yeah. You know, you're raping and pillaging in my house. You're taking over. You're making me afraid to leave the house. You're making me afraid of change. You're making me afraid to be alive. And every time I run away from you, you get fatter. And you get stronger. So let's have a look here. Come in, have a sit down. Let me make your cup of tea. Do you want to meet my wife? <clears throat> stay as long. You're threatening to stay forever. Stay as long as you want. So I had this kind of righteous anger. And the moment I felt this anger, this idea just dropped into my mind to draw a fear pyramid and just to, to actually sit down and write down all the things I was afraid of and confront them one by one systematically. The least fear at the bottom step of the pyramid, the worst fear at the top. So that's, that was later in my early 20s, and I just decided to stop running and start facing. Um, and that's where I kind of, the manual for this body, the manual to understand this body of mind started to unfold. And then when I read books, I, the, the books explained to me, some of the better books explained to me what it was I was experiencing, but they didn't give me anything I hadn't experienced. They were saying, you've got to experience something first. And then if you read and do the study, we'll, um, we'll explain to you and deepen and, and broaden what it is that you've experienced. So the books and the education and the learning became very important. They didn't give me knowing. They gave me... Um, understanding the wisdom was to was to reach out to education and the understanding came from the education but the knowing is a happy accident the knowing is a being is a spirit um and it's it's what uh, it's what richard rose would call a happy accident nobody quite knows how to make it happen but we do know all the things that make us accident prone so we we can prepare the ground for when this seed lands so my journey then my Kind of, my kind of didactic journey then became inwards. Yeah. It was about going inwards. Um, and so often when I went inwards, I would be led to a book or to a talk or, or to a film or, you know, it would come from any number of places. Um, and I would just, you know, start to dedicate more and more time to study. But most of my study was initially was in the world, getting... Um, I lived in extremists for quite a long time. I mean, and if you're depressed, yeah. you know, and, and you're fearful, 
um, and you've got trauma, you're living in extreme risk. So that's an experience. That's a very powerful experience. And within that experience, there is a massive amount of knowledge. You have to be prepared to turn into it and embrace it and absorb it, 99% of it, before it will give up the gold. But any, any extreme experience, or, and I'm not being patronising because I know people are suffering, uh, but any extreme experience is loaded with treasure. If you can go into it and um, break it down to its component parts, you'll find treasure in there. So my life was one of extremists. And, and then my study has been about unpacking the wisdom that came from living in extremists. What did those extreme situations teach me? What did they teach me that a book or a lecture can't teach me? You know, what did they teach me that um, a doctor can't teach me? What did they teach me that no living being can teach me? You know, because you go into, uh, say, when I became a doorman, <clears throat> the, 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 that world, that particular world had its own egregore, had its own spirit, and it contained all of the knowledge that had ever been accumulated within that field. And when you enter it, you risk your life, of course, because people die in those employees. But, um, and that's what it asks. If you want knowledge, you, you know, the, it's the, it's, I think it's this, the third law of Zeus, or the first law of Zeus, no knowledge without pain. You know, Aeschylus tells us that those who learn suffer. So it's kind of saying you have to risk everything. But the egregore says, this is Jeff Thompson. This is where he is. This is what he's looking for. This is how fast he can move. This is how much he's prepared to risk. So the people on the door, as much as you think they might teach you, don't really teach you. And the experience itself isn't the teacher. It's the spirit around it, the spirit around every extreme situation that will teach you exactly what works but in order to learn what works you have to let go of everything you think you know yeah because it's saying there's no room for us to teach you what what you need to know if you're holding on to what you think you know mm. so and of course what we think we know is attached to our gurus to our martial arts teachers to our parents you know to our schools we have to let go of all that we have to let go of all of the professionals all of those all of those people, we have to let go of everything and let this egregore teach us. And then it will say to you, this is what works. And you go, it can't be that simple. Yeah. It can't be that simple, but it is. And then you start teaching that um, as a practical method. And people go, it can't be that simple. <laughs> and I go, yeah, well, believe me, it is. I've made it work yeah. several hundred times against people that did not want it to work, people that were um, invested in not working. So, I mean, I've gone further ahead, but yeah. basically my, my, my learning has been, was turned from um, running away from the feelings, yeah. running away from the emotions, covering the emotions, blocking the emotions, hiding from the emotions, evading the emotions, denying the emotions to go in, let's have a look at yeah yeah that's the big big turning point when you start to look at the and when you had that moment of almost clarity where you let the fear in and you decided to confront it you said you created a list of things you were least fearful of and things you were most fearful of so what were those things and what did you do to overcome them then at the beginning <clears throat> it was it was the obvious things i was afraid of spiders it might not seem like a big thing <clears throat> But if there was a spider in the corner of the room, it would climb inside my mind and I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd got this idea that it was going to crawl over and fall on my head, all those things. Yeah. So if there was a spider in the bath, you know, it, a tiny little creature would, 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 would um, interrupt my autonomy. That's how much, that's how powerful a spider was. It would interrupt my autonomy because it would stop me doing certain things. So I basically just found a spider and I kept picking it up and putting it down picking it up and putting it down until I was no longer afraid of spiders. So then spiders no longer affected me. Um, you know, and if you wanted to do it, break it down even more, you could look at pictures of spiders. They call it flooding. You know, so you get desensitization to the feelings by flooding yourself with the thing that you're afraid to do. I think Viktor Frankl called it paradoxical intention. Mm. We, we start to look at this. We start to encourage and ask for the things that we're afraid to look at. So we, we uh, challenge the validity and the reality of what we're afraid of by saying, let's have a look at that. 
And like I said, it remains a three-dimensional monster right until the point that you absorb 99%. I'm paraphrasing Ushaba, but you absorb 99% and it dissipates. And then this three-dimensional monster becomes a two-dimensional cartoon, which then falls back into uh, the superposition, what they call, in, they call it in uh, physics, superposition, which is um, the, the possibility, it falls back into a, into a super possibility. So it just pulls, falls back into its component parts again. So, yeah, so the idea is that you keep confronting things, you get desensitization to the feelings that come up um, until you no longer are afraid of that item. You're in that process. You first, the first big thing you do is you recognize that that thing that stole my autonomy, I've just took it back again. Yeah. I've proved that that was nothing to fear there. Actually, I wasn't really afraid of the spider. I was afraid of the feelings that the spider revoked. Yeah. And I wasn't really afraid of the feelings. I just didn't understand the feelings. Um, and and, I, and I, I wasn't really afraid of an object. I was, it was a perception of an object that I was afraid of. So you start to, you, you, by picking up a spider, you start to realize very quickly, and this took me a while to articulate, that perception is what creates our world. Mm. You know, so perception um, will make something either fearful or joyful. So one man's fear is another man's excitement. That's just perception. You know, one man looks through prison bars. Uh, one, one, um, yeah, two men look through prison bars. One sees mud, the other stars. There's a lovely, that's a lovely saying, but it's basically saying it's your perception that creates your world. That's why I don't, I'm not busy going around trying to fix everybody's world because there are 7 billion. Where do you start? Mm. I can only fix my world. When I fix my perception of the world, I'm talking physics again. You're, you're, the way you observe the world changes, changes the way the world is, literally, not a metaphor. So the, the first lesson of picking up a spider is that my perception of this spider created fear and that fear stole my autonomy. That stole my ability to create in the world and to live in the world. So that gave me a lot of confidence, a lot of courage, a lot of wisdom. The wisdom was, oh, when I confronted that and picked it up, the fear went away. Um, so I went to the next fear. I think it was the fear of dentists. <clears throat> Uh, I hadn't been to the dentist for years and I built up this fear of dentists because when I was younger, I went to the dentist and had a very bad experience and never quite overcame it. But I thought, yeah. I'm not a child. I'm a man. I don't need to be dictated by the, the memories of a child in me. So I went to the dentist and filled in all the forms and uh, <laughs> sat in the dentist chair. Never, ever, ever, ever feared it again after that one confrontation. The spider took a few times. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a few times. Then I had a fear of karate competitions. I was a black belt, um, but I was more fearful as a black belt than I was not as a black belt. Because now I was a black belt, I was suddenly thinking, I shouldn't be scared. Um, and everybody yes. thinks I'm this god. And I'm not, I'm just scared all the time. So it made me more scared, it put more pressure on me. So I thought I was afraid of competitions. And I was even afraid of admitting that I was afraid of competitions. So I used to say things like, I'm just not for me. I'm not really the sports type. I just like to do the pure karate. You know, I made lots of excuses, but really I was scared. Yeah. So I went to the first competition, which happened to be the Liverpool Open, which was like going into, <clears throat> it was like, it was like going into Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I mean? It was just like this, one of the toughest competitions in the country. But I went to there and I had quite a few fights. I'm not a great competition fighter, but I wasn't there for that. I was there to overcome my fear of competitions. And basically, it was just about being comfortable to sit in the fear, to sit in the adrenaline. And then once you're in the adrenaline, you develop techniques to slow it down, you know, like pranayama, you know, breathing. Um, and you build an eye wall. You learn, to, you learn to sit your consciousness in the very center. So when it's drawn towards fear, you pull it back. Yeah. When it's drawn towards catastrophe, you pull it back. So you learn to build a, an internal eye wall and you sit in the center of the storm. So although there's chaos around you, there's blue skies in the center. So it's there and you can feel it trying to break in, <clears throat> but you don't let it. But you don't build an eye wall unless there's a storm, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you have, to, you have to place yourself deliberately into a storm in order to create an eye wall. 
Sorry about my cough. <clears throat> no problem. It's an interesting thing, Tom, when you start to talk truth. Mm. Things in your own body try to prevent you. That, that, that is not just, this is not just about um, uh, me having a dry throat. This is about energies in me that are opposed to me telling this truth. Because once this truth is recorded, yeah. it is a spirit and it is out there in the works. Literally, I'm using sound, sonic energy. I'm using, you could call it quanta or... Um, or that wouldn't be the right word. You could call it spirit. Yeah. Energy anyway, that goes out, sits on this and it'll be here forever. So when somebody listens to this, if we do it right, and I hope we do, they'll, the, the spirit that we leave on this will enter them and they will be inspired. Right. And that will act as an intercession, but there will always be interruptions. Yeah. There will always be things. And the more opposition there is, the more likely it is that you're saying something that has spirit in it yeah so so the idea is that you uh, each time you climb up the pyramid you overcome a fear of course your confidence grows and the, and the you know the the fear at the bottom of the pyramid which is the spider and the fear at the top which is violent confrontation might yeah. seem miles apart but they're only they're only separated by a degree they might feel very disparate but they're separated only by degree so i've built up the pyramid um and as I started to climb the pyramid, a strange thing happened. All of these placeholders, spider, uh, you know, dentist, karate competitions, I recognized they were hiding something out. So below that, I was, I was afraid of my mother. I was a grown man, but I was afraid of my mother. I'd got a tattoo on my arm um, that I, I hid every time I saw her because I was afraid of her seeing it. Yeah. I was afraid of my wife. <clears throat> I can feel a theme building here, but I was afraid of dominant women. And I gave my autonomy over to dominant women. And, you know, I, I was afraid to live my life. Again, these fears were stealing my autonomy. So I recognized that I was, that I was afraid of them. So I put them on the list on my pyramid as an inner pyramid. So as I, as I overcome the obvious fears, the fears at the front, below those scabs, I found deeper fears. I was afraid of change. If I was in work and, and they brought a new guy into work, you know, somebody else got hired, I would feel threatened until I got to know that person. Any kind of change in my life created fear. Um, I was afraid of success. I, did, I was afraid of success because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what it meant. If you'd, if you'd have said to me, what do you want to be successful in? I wouldn't be able to articulate what that was or how to do it. Like I spoke to a, a, a rough sleeper recently <clears throat> And we had a cup of tea and I said, what, what would you really like to do? And he said, I'd like to be in big business, big business and help people, you know, especially people who were on the street. I said, that's really good, but big business in what? And he said, you know, just big business. And I said, that's, it's good. It's good to have those aims, which, you know, is there something that you particularly want to do business in? But he didn't know. He had an idea of something and the fear was perpetuated by the fact that every time he approached it, overwhelmed him because he didn't understand it so um i was afraid of success because i didn't understand it i was brought up on um fairy stories you know like um kind of rare anomalies where people get like seven figure three book deals and um yeah. and people are suddenly you know uh people are suddenly vaulted into massive fame and, and they win the lottery our idea of success was a lottery win or a, a pool's win so we would talk about it in the pub over a beer and get excited about writing a song, even though we didn't know how to write a song, you know, and, and, and making millions of pounds and getting a play made, even though we had no idea about even how to write a play or present a play. We had no information, we had no knowledge. So, so you'd have this excitement when you sat down. And then when the, when the after effects of the beer had worn off, you'd have this deep depression because you think, I'm stuck here. Yeah. I'm stuck in this reality. So um, <clears throat> you start, you have, you, you, I was afraid of success because I didn't understand what it was. So success was saying to me, you can have me. I'm, I'm yours, but you need, you need to articulate what you want. You need to understand me. You need to understand what I'm demanding. You know, um, if I want to be a good martial artist, <clears throat> I'm not going to get there on two or three sessions a week. That's recreational. And even at five sessions a week, it's pretty good, but it's still, you know, it's still part time. You know, if I want to be a good martial artist, at some point I'm going to have to immerse myself into it completely, not just full time, 
full-time with escalating instruction. Mm. I need to constantly be at the bottom of someone's class. When our teachers used to come and grade us, I could never understand why they were so much better than everybody else. I just didn't understand. They were brilliant. I didn't know why these guys were were like a league above us. Mm. Yeah. Of course, when I gave up my job and trained full-time, um, I realized they were doing it full time. They were training with the best Japanese teachers in the world. And it was their job. It's all they did. The reason they were good at it was because it was all they did. They were completely entangled with it, completely immersed in it. So it was just about information. And of course, every time I went towards information, this opposition rose up. Because if you're looking for autonomy, right, that's what I was looking for. I was looking to be free to express myself freely, all of the elements in you, all of the split elements, or elements, all of um, what do they call them, the autonomous complexes, all of those splits that have been created by traumas in our life, they are semi-autonomous thought forms or beings in your body that don't want you to be autonomous. They don't want you to be autonomous because if you're autonomous, they're dead. They can't have a pseudo reign. They can't steal your energy. They can't force you to do negative things. They can't continue to squat in your body if you're autonomous they wouldn't be able to exist so these these thought forms rise up trigger the endocrine system give you fear um, and cause you to run away from the very thing it is that you that you're aiming for so they convince you they torture you they coerce you they threaten you and you'll also start to hear them through other people other people around you because if you're if you're split personality or or of your divided self or your inner demon acts up it will trigger all the inner demons around you everybody's got a split everybody's got these autonomous complexes so other people will start saying who do you think you are you can't do that you know what's wrong with you You, you've got to got kids to feed you know just go to work do your job you know how are we going to live you know, um, you said, so suddenly you're surrounded by massive opposition and that's the meteor belt at the very edge of your reality. And you have to be prepared to understand that and go through it. And of course, you don't really understand it until you've been through it. Once mm-hmm. you've been through it once, you go, I understand that now. And then you can go through it again and again. So I kept climbing the pyramid, learning all of these things as I went. Then I got to the top and the top was, um, along the way I gave up my job um, as a factory worker on shifts. And I took a job in the day, and I learned to trade, I became a bricklayer. So I started to really grow. And then eventually my final fear was a fear of violent confrontation. So I took a job as a nightclub doorman to overcome that fear. Yeah. And what I'd learned up until that point was to put myself in situations that triggered my fear. And then I developed techniques to, um, to channel it, to drive it or to slow it down. Mm-hmm. So I learned with certain breathing techniques, I could, I could take the body from sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, back to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is homeostasis, our natural balance, just through slowing my breathing down. I could create an eye wall which is to bring all of my attention into the very center of my being. And I could sit there and I could watch, just watch this um, storm all around me without being sucked into it. I learned how to um, recognize when the ego rose up or when the split personality rose up. I, I recognized it as a separate personality. I recognized it as a divided part of me. And I learned to um, individuate that and bring it back into wholeness. So I learned a lot of things just by picking up a spider and uh, <laughs> overcoming the fear of a spider. There's, there's, there is an arcana of knowledge locked into that one tiny fear. And it asks you to unpack it, of course, you know, and that might take several lifetimes, you know, because the, the, the tiny wisdom of, of confronting a small fear contains a seed, which is like an acorn seed. And if you unpack it, it has the potential to grow into a 200 foot, 500 year old oak, which will, which will produce a million more seeds of wisdom, just like that, a million. So that one tiny seed has the potential to create another million like itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, each of those seeds has the potential to create a million ad infinitum. So basically our, our ability to evolve is infinite. 
but we have to continually remind ourselves why am i doing this why am i stepping into this why am i um building an eye wall why am i overcoming fear why am i not just you know disappearing into a day job and pretending that that doesn't exist you know why am i challenging perception and then of course you start looking at all of the bibles because because you're um your teaching leads you to that and you recognize that all of the bibles are telling you the same thing all of them the, the essence of buddhism is dependent origination basically saying what i've just said if you don't engage it it's not real yeah. you know reality exists at the level of engagement if you look then you start looking at the vedas you know the hindu texts um the bhagavad gita you know the mahabharata the srimad bhagavatam they're, they're saying the same thing they're saying that 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 you know when Arjuna, the prince of the world, loses his kingdom and has to go to fight in the Battle of Guru, etc., he's not fighting enemy soldiers on the battlefield. It's an allegory for uh, man's battle with perception. He's not winning back a worldly kingdom. He's winning back his he's winning back his inner kingdom, which is his which is his own autonomy, and he's stealing it from his corrupt curtains or corruption. So the, all of the Bible start to say that everything you want, everything you want, everything you want is behind that line of fear. And you have to go through that. But if you yeah. surrender to consciousness, this is the essence of the bit of the Gita and the essence of all the Bibles. If you surrender to consciousness, going over that battlefield will be as simple as stepping over the hoof print of a calf in the mud. This I'm paraphrasing Krishna when he's delivering the Gita to Arjuna. So it's all about, all of them are talking about fear. Fear is the enemy and it's the biggest trickster. It's not real, but it's real enough to throw a kid under a train because he's depressed. That's how real it is, but it's got yeah. no reality. It has reality if we engage it, if we identify with it. And I think we're living in such a society, aren't we, where everything is made comfortable for people. You know, you don't even have to move. You can go on your phone to order food. You can, order, you can go on your computer to order things. And I think society is almost being modeled to make everything as easy and as effortless as possible. So therefore, when yeah. people do step out of that and want to confront their fears or want to do something that's slightly outside of their comfort zone, they immediately get that sense of fear, like you're like you're mentioning, and that imposter syndrome that you felt in, in martial arts and we've all felt. And instead of overcoming that fear, they create that barrier for themselves and think, actually, that, that's too much for me. I'm, I'm tapping out. And what you're yeah. saying is just that you've got to go over that. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to eschew society. You've got, to, uh, you've got to stop listening to, you know, I mean, what do we do in every morning? Ten murders and a thousand deaths yeah, exactly. before breakfast. Before breakfast. Yeah. No wonder everyone's scared to leave the house. And of course, we're not only, we're not only, we're not only giving our autonomy away, Tom, we're, we're begging somebody to have our autonomy. We're begging the government, please have our, have our autonomy. Mm. Please, you know, please look after us. Please make sure we can meet our gas bill. Please make sure that we've got work. Please, you know, that we, we, we're actively giving it away. We're actively putting ourselves into, a, into a, a weak position. And there are forces outside of people that work through people that encourage that because that's how it feeds. You know, this is a parasitical realm and there are parasites feeding off us invisible parasites feeding off us all the time and if we don't see that they're going to keep usurping our energy because it is a very precious energy it's the energy of causation and they're going to keep taking over the human body and using the human as a as a plaything and as a and as a food bank but that's obvious you know if yeah. i walk across the field at the back of my house now in the summer with shorts on you can guarantee I'll come back with several parasite bites um, and they'll all be drinking my blood. And it's not personal, Tom. It's mm. my fault because I didn't put trousers on when I walked across the field. We know that. We, we know that. And they're so small, you can't hardly see them. Um, and the same's happening all the time. You know, we, we, we are clickbaited into um, spilling our energy every single day in, in, a, in a thousand different ways. Once you see it, yeah. You start to um, protect your energy like it's a treasure because it is specifically your autonomy or the body of autonomous will, basically your willpower. Mm. You know, our will, our will to um, make decisions based uh, from from wisdom and love. That's Thomas Aquinas's um, articulation of what freedom is. 
free freedom is is our ability to make decisions based on wisdom and love um, and and to consistently do that and we can't do that without knowledge we can't do that without knowing without certainty but certainty is a gift it's a grace we can't earn we can't even earn it you can't even you can't learn it or earn it you can it can only be given to you as a grace but there are lots of things you can do that will put you in the in the way of grace yeah. that will create a happy accident and when it lands boom it's like the world changes it's like it's like you've climbed up everest and you've come down and the world does not look the same yeah. everything is possible i want to talk about another episode in your life um where you had to forgive someone who betrayed your yeah. trust so that's probably the hardest thing and we'll call him your abuser where he took your trust and he ran away with it and then you had to then navigate your way through life after that where you where i read that you felt quite angry at the world you felt quite upset betrayed and you struggled with forgiveness so can you talk to me a little bit about that yeah i was i was abused by um my martial arts teacher my first martial arts teacher when i was, I was about 11 or 12 um and i've been groomed for about a year kind of and gaslighted all of the normal stuff you know um where you know i idolized this guy you know yeah. there was no danger there for me. it was just i just idolized him and then on one this particular occasion um i was sexually abused by him and another guy it was it was him and his friend um we were we were all all the students were, were kind of called into the to the dojo we were, we were going to have a day there <clears throat> we we're going to help fix some of the mats and we we're going to stay overnight maybe sleep on the trampoline and yeah. you know all of this exciting stuff by the time the day was over there was there was uh all the kids had gone there was just me and my teacher and his friend <clears throat> and it obviously it felt suspicious it felt funny but I, i'm like 11 12 i've only been in the world a few months really you, you know you put that to one side and you think oh it's you know then in the middle of the night i'm you know i'm invaded i'm abused <clears throat> and it so traumatized me that it created a split what i talked about before this autonomous complex yeah it created a split in me and from that day onwards my whole life changed i went to bed as a an 11 year old i woke up and i was 100 years old wow. you know my life as a child was over i knew that absolutely knew it but what i didn't realize was there was a split in me I created a split because it was so traumatic and I, it was so beyond my comprehension i couldn't process it it create created this this um autonomous complex this split and over time those two things grew separately so there was the still the 11 year old who was just growing up normally and then there was this autonomous split or the, what you would call a divide or a demon mm. <clears throat> indigenous tribes would call it a demon so this separate side side of me that grew up uh, fearful and anxious and uh, remained bound and linked to this person who abused me. So even when we were separated by time and space and I hadn't seen him for years, he was still climbing inside. He was still taking my autonomy. Well, he wasn't climbing inside, he was inside. But it was like an, umbil an um, umbilical cord connecting the two of us or a feeding pipe. And over time, he would feed from me, take over my autonomy, and I would find myself abusing myself, sexually abusing myself, um, smashing my hands against a wall in frustration and anger, being very afraid um, and not, not even consciously realizing that I've got a split, just thinking it's just me. I'm just, um, I'm just depraved. I'm just, you know, I didn't recognize that it wasn't me. I, rec I didn't recognize that it was a parasitical form in me. Yeah. So I'd be in the field with my girlfriend and I'd be kissing her. I'd be like maybe 12 or 13. And suddenly her face would turn into the face of a man with stubble and all the features of a man. I mean, I'm talking literally it'd be a man's face and I would be yeah. terrified and I'd have to recoil. It made me very nervous. I, I didn't, I, I was very afraid to be on my own and, and I was very afraid to have my clothes off. When I'd have my clothes off, I would find myself abusing myself. I know this is uncomfortable to hear, but I know there are people out there exactly. who, who will have gone through the same thing. Mm. And if somebody doesn't talk about it, it's always going to feel like a dirty secret. But this is all part of, you could call it in quantum, they would call it entanglement, or in, in theology, they would call it possession. 
So you're semi-possessed or entangled by the person that abused you. It's created a split and the split constantly feeds off negativity and it, it links back to the person. So the person that abused you is inside you and it's got some of your autonomy. That's what, and what later I realized forgiveness was about giving that, giving him back his parasite and taking back my autonomy. So um, that led me to, that led to lots of later depressions, lots of self-abuse. Um, uh, and, and in the depressions, I would either be in bed, couldn't get out of bed, or I'd be smashing my house to, to matchsticks in wild yeah. temper. Um, and of course, with all of the, because, I, because of how I was with myself, because I abused myself, there was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of blackmail in my head. If people knew what you were really like, people knew what you really did, all of this stuff. And that was what was killing me. So this parasite was getting fatter and stronger on my guilt until eventually I became a doorman and it found a place to really act out. As a bouncer, I learned a lot of good things, but I also fed this parasite because everybody in the world to me was a threat. Everybody was trying to get in my pants. Everybody was going to abuse me. So I knocked out, you know, hundreds of people. I battered hundreds of people. I didn't just not, it isn't like, it's no romance. You know, I knocked them out and then I'll kick their teeth out. You know, it was bloody and it was brutal and it was unkind. So this parasite was growing in me, um, but I never saw it as a separate self. I just felt, I just thought I was kind of deviated. I thought, felt I was a deviant. And I never, it was only when I started to write about it and writing was my way of exorcising it. Yeah. It was only when I started to, to write about it that I realized I'd lived all of my adult life into my forties with nobody knowing this. Nobody knew this, only me. Nobody, I'd never spoke to anybody about it. My wife didn't know, nobody knew about it. It was just something. And it was so normal. This self-abuse was so normal that obviously it was hidden. I never showed anybody, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize I was living two lives. I didn't I have no idea I was living two lives. It, this energy, this um, lust would, or, or this rage or whatever it was that came up would, ru would rush over me so quick that suddenly I was acting it out. So I'd be running to smash my hands against the wall, or I'd be running to look at the porn on the internet or a porn magazine, or I'd be running to, you know, masturbate maybe five times before i could get this energy out of me you know what i mean and i'd be rushing to feed that in on on violent imagery on pornography on pornog pornographic imagery and it was just feeding this thing, but, I, but i had no conscious knowing that that was happening yeah. until i started to write about it and this voice you know this 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 um deviant that I was writing about became terrified that I was writing about it because when you bring it to light, it becomes light. Yeah. You know, it dissolves it. It's absolutely painful to this um, being when you start to expose it. So I had massive opposition, massive opposition to write anything about this at all. Eventually I wrote a play called Fragile, which is all this stuff, you know, all of the detail, all of what went through in my mind. It was all the blackmailing stuff that said, when people see this, they're going to hate you. They're going to judge you. They're going to think you're a, you know, you're a dirty piece of rag. They're going to think you're shit on their shoe. You know, you're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your agent. You're going to lose your friends. People are going to see what you really are. And I, I wrote it and said, okay, let's let them see. I remember my wife saying to me, you're really nervous about this play. What, why are you so nervous? And I said, well, I've written things in there that I've never written before. And she said, like what? I said, well, I, sexually abused myself for years and years nobody knew she said but she said but you didn't do that and I said no I did though I did I said then she, she didn't know nobody knew not, not anybody knew and I said but uh you know I, I need to write about it I need to clean it I need to get it out so I put it on a play and put it in front of uh, thousands of people over you know, over the period it was on at the theatre, and then it travelled around Europe and did it like a mini tour. And every single time I went to watch the play, my body trembled. I'll tell you a story, Tom, as well. Should I tell you? Just think. Yes, I'll t I've never told this story ever, but I'll tell you it. Okay. And it's only because it's come to mind now. On the last night of the play, come back 
um, from the play. And it was traumatic. Every night I went to watch it, it was traumatic. I had to go and see it. I had to watch it being cleaned. And I had to, watch, let, the, I have to, have to ha let the audience help me watch it clean. And I come back and it was finished. And I thought, well, that's over. And I sat on the settee and I suddenly fell onto my knees, looked up into the sky and went, yeah. And I just felt something leaving me. My mouth was so wide open, it was hurting. I've never spoke about this because I've never really consciously remembered it. But um, I recognised that it was a proper exorcism. It was an exorcism of an energy that had been implanted me in me as an 11-year-old that created a split. And the only way to exorcise it is to forgive it. When I write about it, I am giving it over. I'm giving it over to a force that can, um, that can balance it, that can redress it. I'm giving it over. When I stand in front of the guy that abused me and say, I forgive you, I'm not letting him off. I'm not pardoning it. I haven't got that ability. What I'm doing is I'm saying, I'm going to, you've got something of mine. This is what the rabbis would say. If somebody's hurt you, chase after them, serve them, because they have something of yours and you need it back. And you have something of theirs and they need that back. So when I forgave him, when I finally forgave him, um, I gave him back the parasite that he'd given me. In other words, I took my autonomy back. And what he'd taken from me, my autonomy, I took back off him. And I severed the link. And that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is freeing yourself from the anger, from the pain, from the dissonance, excuse me, from the abuse. It's a long process. but And I've done that through writing, through talking, yeah. um, you know, not just, you know, when I forgave, when I finally met this man in my 40s and forgave him, I'd got a lifetime of abuse behind me. I've been in thousands of violent situations, hundreds of fights. I've damaged hundreds of people. That isn't going to come out of the plumbing just because I forgive somebody, you know, and I, I can't even forgive myself because I haven't got that ability either. All I can do is repent and repair. So after I'd forgiven him, I, I, I still got all of that stuff stuck in my plumbing. So the process then was to repair, was to bring that out bit at a time, write about it, talk about it, process it. Jung would call it individuation. So he says that all the broken parts need to become whole. So individuation is bringing those broken parts up, yeah. looking at them, observing them, processing them, bringing them into the light, and becoming whole again. So there was a long process after that. That is still continuing. What we're doing now is a part of that process. Me talking to you is a part of that process. It's a part of um, individuation. It's very powerful. It's a powerful, powerful didactic technique open to everybody, individuation. We're all split. Everybody's had some trauma and we all need to become whole. And the parts of us that, the, the parts of us that are split do not want us to become whole because when we become whole, they are transfigured. They no longer have any autonomy. They can no longer banquet on the human buffet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, yeah, that's, I don't know. I've never written about that before because I didn't, I don't think I quite understood what it, what it meant, but I do now, obviously, because I've studied a lot more, but yeah, so something left me. The, the bulk of what was in me left me. Um, the bulk of you would in in theology would call it possession, um, which is quite dramatic. But in in physics, they would call it entanglement. Yeah. We become entangled and bound to the nature of our abuse, um, and the only way we can overcome that, you know, what the solution to entanglement is, entanglement. So where we're entangled a little bit, you you fully entangle yourself until you completely absorb it, and then it just pops. Mm -hmm. so the, 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 um, the solution to possession is to go right into the heart of what it is that's blackmailing you into the emotions and absorb 99% of it and then it will give up the ghost. It can't, it can't stand the Moses eye, the eye of observation. So um, we impact a lot there. But yeah, so, so that, that process continues, that process of cleaning, of cleansing, of healing. And a lot of it comes from um, writing, from teaching, from studying, you know, and from constantly being um, in the very center of it all, you know. So it's no longer, it's, 
it's no longer um, about me kind of doing this two or three times a week or, or reading at the weekend. This is about my whole life. Yeah. My whole life is absorbed in helping the universe to evolve, to evolve by evolving myself. And it can't evolve through me if I've got lots of blocks, if I've got lots of traumas and lots of splits. But it, to work through you, it needs to be, you need to be whole. If you've got lots of splits in you, any essence that's going to come through is going to be siphoned and leaked and uh, it's going to be parasited by, you know, any energy that tends to be walking by. So our job is to become as whole as we can, like a hose. If I want to go out and water my garden, if I've got 20 leaks in it, I'm going to lose as much water as I put into the garden. So this is about sealing the links. And it's also about cleaning the hose. If I put clean water through a dirty hose, it will come out dirty. So this is about cleansing, it's about repairing, it's about fixing, which is, uh, which is the essence of all the religions. It's the essence of our Buddha in our martial arts. You look at Ushiba, Funakoshi, um, Sun Tzu. If you look at any of the, you know, um, uh, any of the great, um, particular, I'm thinking particularly Ushiba, because he spoke about it very, very uh, articulate, articulated it very well. Um, then our job within there is is uh, to become whole, to become centered, so that we can be a better vessel to create in this world. I'm speaking to you for the past 45 minutes. I'm just curious. You, you said at the beginning that when you grew up, you knew you had that creative almost gene or incentive inside of you that you knew you could go on and, and create something amazing. And you had to go through all of those traumatic experiences, face those fears to find that sense of fulfillment and purpose in your writing and your reading and your speaking. So this is quite a big question. If someone asked you, well, I'm asking you right now, if you could get to where you are right now and know everything that you know, or, and never go through what you've been through, would you? I wouldn't change anything. You wouldn't change anything, no. No, I see this as a manufactured environment. Yeah, the world is manufactured. It is, uh, it is a, an escape room. So if you come to my masterclass, right, that's an artificial environment that I set up for twelve months. I don't do it now, but I set it up say for six months or twelve months. Yeah, it's a manufactured environment, and people will come from all around the world and spend six months with me, and it's designed purely to bring out your weaknesses, to expose your flaws, also to accentuate your strengths. But it's there and no matter who you are, I don't set it up like this. I, I create the space and it has an egregore that will draw out anything that needs to be looked at. So the idea is that it's a manufactured environment. You're not there to change the class. You're not there to change my class. You're there, to, you're there just to see what comes up and it will come from the most unexpected places. And if you can survive the six months, you'll come out with knowledge. But a lot of people don't survive the six months and they, they blame me. Or they, you know, they blame the traffic or they'll blame, you know, something will come up to block them from doing it. Yeah. So the whole idea of my masterclass was um, this is a Gurdjieff principle is that we create an, uh, an artificial environment that will, with natural um, antagonists, that will draw out any shadow that we have, any split that we have, anything that needs to be individuated will be drawn out through that class. Um, and that's how, that's how we become whole. But the world is a macrocosm of that classroom. Mm. So this, the world, the, the great earth, they say that it's, so, it's such a difficult environment. It's such a, a difficult class that even the Buddhas come here to perfect the way. This is, this, is a, this is an environment that they come into in order to perfect the way. So the, there isn't one world out there, Tom. There's seven billion. And each of us has got to, each of us has got to work through our version of the world ourselves and we're here we're here to face difficulties if you come to my class and we just sat and had tea for 12 months and i give you a black belt it wouldn't mean much to you mm. you know you come to my class precisely because there's things you don't know and you want to know you want to come because there's people there that are better than you at a particular area and you want to improve you know you come to the class because it's going to put you under more pressure than you think you can cope with um, and you come willingly and you pay money yeah. right? you, because you know it's going to improve you. It's going to evolve you. And the universe is going to encourage that because if you evolve, it evolves. You become a better vessel. It, it, ha it has a better vessel. 
the universe is always projecting out and looking back at itself. And it needs, to, it needs vehicles like us to do that. So we're not here to fix this world, even though part of what we do might be trying to fix it. We're here to evolve. Um, the world is malleable. Like I said, it's, um, uh, it's, not, it's not meant to be fixed. My job isn't to try and fix anybody else. My job is to evolve. And part of, part of the, the matrix of that is that I evolve by helping other people, by telling other people what I've learned. Yeah. So when I tell other people what I've learned, like, for instance, I've told today we've talked for maybe we've talked for an hour and I've told you things I didn't consciously know before. So I've learned and, and I've not only underlined what I know, but I've also learned today certain things I've never, ever said ever before. My, people might think, well, Jeff's told this story a hundred times. I've seen it a hundred times. Every single time there'll be something in there that's never been spoken before. Wow. So my, my gift... My, my way of understanding what I know is to, is to share what I know with other people. So today I recognize that, that um, the secrets of the universe existed, all of it existed in one tiny spider that was stopping me from sleeping. That was the universe putting a the spider there saying, look at me, don't run away from me. The secret to the whole universe is in here. And the secret to all of it is that concept of... Um, this concept that reality exists at the level of engagement, dependent arising. That's the, con that's the whole concept. If it rises up and we don't engage it, it falls back into the realm of possibilities, into the super possibilities. If we engage it, we incarnate it. If we incarnate it, it becomes us and it creates karma in the world. And then we have to pay the debt of that karma. Mm -hmm. So the, what, 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 reality consists of is determined by us it's absolutely determined by us it's perception led but perceptions can be changed concepts can be changed cognitions can be changed precepts can be changed but not if we're sitting watching the news 10 times a day yeah. having the same conversations around the canteen at work and, and having the same conversations with our wives People are afraid to look at the truth because their whole reality it relies on them not knowing the truth. Mm -hmm. Just like certain businessmen I've worked with, um, I'm not invested in finding the truth because their seven and eight figure companies relying on, re rely on them not knowing the truth. Yeah. If they know the truth, they won't be able to work the way they're working. And how do you tell your wife that? Oh, uh, by the way, I've just realized that I'm slightly corrupt in my business. I've hidden from it for a long time. I'm not really serving people. I use lots of duplicity. Um, so this seven-figure income we've got has got to go. We've got to live more simply because I can't live like that. You, you're going you're gonna to lose 95% of your social circle in one sweep. Mm. So we are, um, we are invested in um, not only seeing the lie, but um, perpetuating the lie because to see the truth... Um, could be devastating. This is a lovely line from Rumi's poem. He says, um, love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. And that's what he's saying. Love obviously is truth. He's saying it isn't just a, 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 you know, a little thing that you're writing in, in a Christmas card or a birthday card or a Valentine's card. Love or truth will give you, you know, um, a clear view of everything. But that might mean that you wake up, you're looking at the girl in bed to, next to you and she's not the girl you thought she was. And all the things that you didn't want to see about her, you suddenly see. You look in your mirror and all the things you didn't want to see about yourself, you see. You know, when, you, when you see your friends in the canteen, you just think, I can't sit here and destroy people like I used to and pretend it's okay. So you lose lots of those friends. And you look at the fact that you're sweeping a floor in a factory and you're thinking, that's not what God's called me to do. I've been called to do something else. Not that there's anything wrong with that job, but that's not what I'm being called to do. Yeah. I've been hiding from what I've been called to do because what, I, what, I, what I've been called to do is going to devastate everything that I'm doing. It's very frightening for people. You know, it's very traumatic to bump into the truth. That's why we tend to receive it in small, in small portions, you know, by piecemeal. We get it a little bit at a time. If we got it all at once, very jarring when i when i got my fifth down 
many years ago, I remember looking in the mirror and think, because it's a master grade, and I'm thinking I'm a master. And I looked in the mirror and I saw this fat, kind of uh, overstuffed bully. Um, there's a kindness there as well. There was lots of nice things, but basically see this, see this bully who was addicted to sexual pornography, who over ate, over drank. I even bullied my own wife, even though none of us would have admitted it. If she didn't want sex with me, I would slam doors and give her a call back in bed, you know, basically saying, if you don't have sex with me, I'm going to be very subtly violent. I'm going to frighten you. Mm. That, was, that was traumatic to look at myself and to see that. Yeah. And not just to see it, but to change it. Know, to change all that and to look at why I felt like that. So the truth is, um, uh, can be traumatic. So we tend to get it in bite-sized pieces. But that's yeah. obviously that's what everyone's looking for. But um, you know, it's that lovely thing that Deepak Chopra said: um, enlightenment, please, but not just yet. Give me enlightenment, but not just yet. <laughs> yeah. It, take, it takes a brave person to do that. And I'll close yeah. with, are you happy? Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. so blissfully happy. I love my life. I've gone through a lot of um, dark nights of the soul, but I'm, I'm yeah. grateful for them because they're, they're what led me to this place. You know, so my whole day is based around what we're talking about now. I'm yeah. studying, I'm writing, I live in the country. Um, I'm talking to people still. I've been out of the world for about five years. I went through a, a very big sabbatical. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I've never been happier. I've never been healthier. Um, and I'm, every day I wake up thinking, you know, I'm, I'm expanding all the time. So I'm learning and understanding more. But ironically, uh, most of my edification comes from charity. In other words, from when I share my love with other people. I learn more. I learn more when I share it with other people than do than I do from any book. Wow, that's incredible. And I wanted to ask you that question because people might be going through what you went through, going through difficult, dark times in their life, and overcoming those fears. And they think, "Well, I'm not feeling this sense of peace or happiness yet." But if you keep pursuing it and you keep overcoming it, then they will find that. Yeah, it's there. And just yeah. tell them not to forget that you know that we we, we are here to evolve and. Pain and discomfort is part of it. We're not here to be happy. I know people keep saying we're here to be happy and we have periods of being happy and periods of not being happy, but we're here to evolve and we evolve through any kind of crisis, any kind of difficulty. That's the universe giving you something to look at, saying, here's a dilemma, here's a, an enigma, here's, here's, here's a problem, but it, within the problem there is gold, there is knowledge. So if you come to my... my, my um, uh, say my black belt course, my masterclass, and you was happy, I know I'm doing the wrong thing. It's the wrong class. If you're not being pushed to your limit, if you're not, you know, if you're not being challenged every situation, if you're not scared to get there, you're in the wrong class because you're not going to grow without any, you're not going to grow without discomfort. So I would encourage them to say that there's something, a lovely saying in the, in the Quran, it says, for every difficulty, one easy. For every difficulty, one easy. This is what we give you. For every difficulty, we will give you one easy. So it's saying that yeah. if you're going through a difficulty now, there will, there will be an easy coming. And if, there's an, if you're in an easy, there'll probably be a difficulty coming. But if you change your perspective and see difficulty as, a, as an opportunity to grow, and instead of running away from it and being afraid of it, be curious about it. What can I learn from this? Yeah, I know it's uncomfortable, and I know I want to run away, but let me be curious about this. And the moment we're curious about it, the brain can't cope, the brain can't process curiosity and fear at the same time. You just can't. So if you start to be curious, genuinely curious, and say, let's look at this, the universe goes, he's awake. The universe is curious. The universe wants to understand itself. It wants to evolve. And if you're curious and you want to understand, you want to understand you're, you are vibrating at the same frequency and it will work through you. So don't be too worried if you're going through a difficult phase. What I would say is, if you fall over, pick something up. Because the, the stuff you learn when you're going through a crisis, the only place you will learn that is in the crisis. You won't learn it from outside of a crisis. You won't, you'll only develop an eye wall. You'll only develop wisdom. You'll only develop a better technique, you know, a, a stronger art by putting yourself in a place you know, that puts you into a crisis. That's what the braver people do. They put themselves at the bottom of someone else's class. If the universe has put you at the bottom of someone's class now, 
and you feel as though you're going through a difficult time and it's a crisis, change your perception. Just look at it and go, there's something here for me to learn. Be curious and watch how the fear starts to skit away. Watch how the opposition starts to hide when you start saying, I'm curious, let me have a look at you. Is that a ghost in the corner of my bedroom or is it just a hat on a hat stand? And if I switch the light on, I'll be able to see it's just a hat on a hat stand. I'm curious. I want to know. Let me put some more light on this. Let me get some more information. Let me get some more knowledge. Yeah, that's incredible. Jeff, thank you for your time today and sharing your story with me. I'm honored to speak to you and, and thank you for inspiring me and inspiring other people with your honesty in your work. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's lovely to speak to you. And thanks for bringing out some great stuff as well. I really enjoyed it.